From Malachi chapter 1, verse 11. For from the rising of the sun, even to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense is going to be offered in my name. And a grain offering that is pure. For my name will be great among the nations. Grace and peace to you. From God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Take up your scripture and your copy of the Word of God. And um, turn, please, uh, as, I, well, as we've been previously advised, uh, the scripture readings have changed a little, uh, to Acts chapter 16. And I'll begin reading there at, um, uh, <clears throat> at uh, let's see, verse 1. But before I do, would you join with me in prayer? Oh Lord, as we open now your word, we pray that the eyes of our hearts may be enlightened, so that we may be able to understand, to, to comprehend, along with all the saints throughout the ages, what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses all other knowledge, that we may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Amen. So, Acts chapter 16. <clears throat> and we'll, we'll read uh, verses 1 through 15. All right. Then he came to Derba and Lystra, and behold, a certain disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a certain woman, which was a Jewess, and believed, but his father was a Greek, which was well reported by the brethren who were at Lystra and Iconium. Him would Paul have to go forth with him, and took and circumcised him because of the Jews which were in those quarters, where they all knew that his father was a Greek. And as they went through the cities, they delivered him, they delivered them the decrees for to keep that were ordained of the apostles and elders which were at Jerusalem. And so were the churches established in the faith, and increased in number daily. Now, when they had gone throughout Phrygia and the region of Galatia, and were forbidden by the Holy Ghost to preach in the word in Asia, after they were come to Mysia, they uh, essayed to go to Bithynia, but the Spirit suffered them not. And they, passing by Mysia, came down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. There stood a man of Macedonia and prayed him, saying, Come over into Macedonia and help us. And after he had seen the vision, immediately was endeavored to go to Macedonia, assuredly gathering that the Lord had called us for to preach the gospel unto them. Therefore, loosing from Troas, we came with a straight course to Samothracia, and the next day to Neapolis. And from there to Philippi, which is the chief city of that part of Macedonia, and a colony. And we were in that city abiding certain days. And on the Sabbath we went out of the city by a riverside, where prayer was wont to be made. And we sat down and spake unto the women which resorted thither. And then a certain woman named Lydia, a seller of purple, 
of the city of Thyatira, which worshipped God, heard us, whose heart was opened, and she attended unto the things which were spoken of Paul. And when she was baptized, and her household, she besought us, saying, If ye have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house, and abide there. And she constrained us. May God add both a blessing to the reading and to the hearing, uh, and also to the preaching of God's word this morning. Amen. Uh, Philippi is my favorite city of uh, the um, of the New Testament um, story, I suppose, um, especially of the uh, journeys of Paul. One. It's the first European city at which we find a convert listed by, uh, in the Bible. Uh, I, I, would sh- I would stop short of saying it's the first place there was a European convert. I'm not sure that that's uh, actually warranted, but certainly it's the first one we find recorded in the scripture. Uh, secondly, it is um, one of the cities that has a great background to it. Uh, Philippi is a place where a great civil war battle had taken place uh, sometime around the B.C. BC, uh, 60s and 70s. Um, It seems that two factions of the Roman Empire came together to clash there, and uh, the the imperial side won, the side who favored the dictatorial uh, government of the Caesars won, and so that... Uh, the Caesar then granted all who were at Philippi the, uh, the privilege of Roman citizenship. It was an important city. It was, um, if you are a historian of American history, uh, the Battle of Philippi was uh, nigh unto importance as the Battle of Gettysburg in the war between the North and South um, some 150 years, 160 years ago now. Uh, especially um, because uh, it was uh, after this that the uh, city of Philippi became very prominent and very important. Um, And it was the case here that Paul and his companions come upon Philippi with uh, the gospel message. And we find in verses 11 through 12, uh, the account of, or 11 through 15, we find the account of Paul and his companions coming and uh, sharing the gospel with those who were there. Um, This only after uh, Paul receiving in in a dream that famous Macedonian vision, come over and help us. We sometimes ask a question when we look at the book of Acts and we see the gospel Progressing, we see the um, people coming to knowledge, the saving knowledge of Christ. Why does God use certain people? Why does He use us? Um, maybe that's the wrong question. Um, what we ought to ask is the gospel is of a certain kind of message. It is uh, very rarely uh, the case that one can be argued into the kingdom of God through logical arguments. The gospel comes to us as a truth. 
a truth which is believed by faith. And so I think the answer to the question, why does God use us or Paul or, or any of those people, uh, why does he use us? The answer is in the gospel itself. And that gospel message, that gospel truth, holds the key to answering the question, why does God involve us in his work anyway? If you look at Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, the prelude or the, uh, the, or the introduction of this book, uh, you find that um, some of the very careful words that Luke puts together are meant to communicate possibly, and give us some sort of idea of why he involves God, us in his work. Um, the former treatise I have made, we read, verses 1, uh, chapter 1, 1, of Otheophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and to teach until the day in which he was taken up, after that, he, through the Holy Ghost, had given commandments unto the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom also he showed himself alive, after his passion, by many infallible proofs, having seen that of them forty days, and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And being assembled together, commanded them that they should not part from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which he says, you have heard of me. And that is the baptism of the Holy Spirit, of course, which comes on Pentecost. The passage would give the impression that these acts of the apostles, these acts that are set forth in the book that Luke writes to Theophilus, are, are, are an account of what Jesus continued to do after he went up into heaven, seeing that he sent the Holy Spirit to empower these men to preach the word of God to the whole nations, to preach and teach what he had taught them to preach and teach. For Jesus had to ascend to the Father before the Father's promise of the Holy Spirit would come. And so is this book correctly named Acts of the Apostles? Well, I might say it could be called Acts of the Holy Spirit. I had an instructor once who said, this, these are really the Acts of Jesus Continued. Uh, these are the Acts of the Trinity. These are the Acts of the Holy Spirit. Yes, all very true. But what's really in a name of a book anyway? I mean... Um, the name of the book, of course, isn't inspired. It's, it's something that someone else has put on the book. Um, the, the Jews like to, like to name, their name their books in the Old Testament, but they were not very imaginative in their, um, in their naming of books. Uh, they named Genesis. Uh, they just took the first word in Hebrew in Genesis, and that's what they named the book. So the book of Genesis, the first book of Moses, is called In the Beginning. That's an aptly named book. They were not really worried too much, I think, about marketing. They did not uh, care too much that the book had an interesting title. Um, not really imaginative, I suppose, uh, but the name of the book is not what you're supposed to be uh, thinking when you read it, and that le leads to the answer to that question in the book of Acts. Who really needs whom? Does God need us to work so the kingdom will come? Can God make the kingdom come without our help? Well, certainly. But can we work outside the, uh, of God's help and establish anything worthwhile? 
anything resembling the kingdom of God about which Jesus taught. No way. It is, therefore, the acts of God in the acts of people here. Now, it is to be implied that God cannot do anything without us, but it is the fact that God has in his, in his, in his, it pleases him to involve sovereignly those who are his people to work for the glory of Christ. He planned it that way. That's the way he does things. He takes those who are of the lowest form, the lowest likelihood, the um, unlikely, and he makes the likely not just possible, but a reality. And he takes people who are of no worth, and he makes them by his spirit of great worth. Now, nowhere is this more important than the enterprise of evangelism, which we read about in Acts 16. Um, the conversion of souls to Christ, I think, is the most spectacular miracle we witness each and every day in this world. It is unconscionable to think that a soul who is by nature hostile to God can be, by the sovereign act of the Holy Spirit, completely transformed through a message which makes very little sense in the world. And yet, it is this great treasure which God has put in, which God has put into His uh, vessels of clay, which is the thing that, in fact, reaches the heart of those who are His to convert them unto Him. You see, God doesn't put us to work in His kingdom because we're gifted, or because we're good at what we do, or, or, or because we know enough, or are handsome enough, or rich enough, or in the right place, or, or any other thing. God does not put us to work because we are gifted. He puts us to work because He is gracious. He doesn't need us to do what His work is, but yet He does it. This is not where Paul and Silas and Luke were going. They, they were not going to Philippi. That wasn't their plan. If you look in the passage, we see that they tried to go everywhere else but there. The only place they didn't try to go was back home to Antioch. Verses 6 and 8. Uh, they tried Phrygia. Huh? They tried Galatia. Nope. They were forbidden by the Holy Ghost to speak of the word in Asia. So uh, they go east, they go west, they go up. They go uh, north into Bithynia, but it doesn't happen. And so they decide, well, let's go to sleep and see what happens then. So they go to sleep, and what happens is they get, hey, come over here, come over here to Macedonia, which they do. And they go from Troas, and they come over to Macedonia. And Luke and Paul and Timothy and Silas arrive there, and they go, and they spend some days in Philippi, and they decide to go on one day out into the Sabbath uh, day to the riverside where prayer was being made. They see there a group of women offering prayer. It seems like these probably were some women who had married Gentile men, uh, just like Paul, uh, Timothy's mother had. And uh, they were there gathered on the Lord's Day. The fact that they did not have a synagogue to worship in means there weren't uh, ten Jewish men in the whole city, probably. And so they were gathered together, and they're praying, and Paul comes to them, and we see exactly what happens. What we're going to see then, uh, what our purpose today is, is to behold 
and to be encouraged in the work and ways of God's Holy Spirit in the conversion of souls. Uh, that is, to behold and be encouraged in the work and ways of God's Holy Spirit as he brings them to him. It's, it's in his preparing of people, their hearts, and in the independence of his work to bring people to them and in the display of his own rule and sovereignty through them as they call upon his name. What we're going to see are three recognizable works of the Holy Spirit in the salvation of those converted to the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me repeat that. Three recognizable works of the Holy Spirit in the salvation of every heart converted to the Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to find that in verses 13 through 15 of Acts 16. So first of all, the first thing we find is the Holy Spirit in Acts 13 or 16:13. The Holy Spirit through the prayers of both the messenger and the receiver prepares their hearts to hear and believe the gospel. That there is a preparation going on of those who would hear the word of God. And we um, look at this passage, especially verse 13, and we see that there were women of a spiritual nature gathering at the riverside. They were, they were Jewish women offering the prayers that were to be made. The prayers that they had heard in their own synagogues growing up uh, from Thyatira, in Lydia's case, um, and other places. And they were gathering on that Sabbath day uh, because they had been there a while. They had uh, engaged in business there. They had probably had uh, works there. Lydia, a successful businesswoman, uh, lived there. Uh, she was also a prominent citizen, appeared to be well-known. She stood out, among others. She'd been waiting at this place of prayer, calling upon the Lord for perhaps many weeks and days or years even. She had uh, gathered with her fellow Jewish women at the riverside to call and wait there for the Messiah. And they had, and she did. Luke doesn't tell us what the problem was with, with, uh, with what, uh, what they were uh, there for, whether there was uh, just no, no men in the town or whatever. It doesn't even elaborate how many exactly, how many women were there. But we do see that after Paul goes and begins to preach the gospel to them, there's a great miracle that happens. We see that they had been gathering to call upon the Lord for many times, and uh, this is exactly where Paul finds them, and he begins to talk to them, and the state of their hearts is that they have, for so many, for, for many, probably many weeks and many years, have been calling upon the Lord, praying that God would, would bring salvation to them, and um, as, uh, as they are prayed and praying for these things, we find that this is a preparation for uh, these souls to receive the gospel. Sometimes we believe that uh, the effectual call of the Holy Spirit upon a person is something that happens at the time the gospel is shared. But in fact, what we understand, if we really look at our lives, the lives of our children, the lives of our neighbors, perhaps uh, even our own lives and our own testimony, is that the call of the Holy Spirit to come and believe the gospel is something that happens over a many, a long period of time. Um, the, uh, <clears throat> sorry about this, the Westminster uh, 
catechism, the larger catechism, says, what is effectual calling? The effectual calling is not an act of God, uh, an act like justification or adoption, but a work of God like sanctification, an ongoing thing that occurs, where God's almighty power and grace out of his free and special love for the elect and from nothing in them moving him, he does in his accepted time invite and draw them to Jesus Christ by his word and spirit. So what we find first of all is that the prayers and the hearts of the messenger and the receiver are prepared by those who may even be praying without true knowledge of what they're praying for. That God has given their hearts an openness to hear and believe the gospel. That's one act of the Holy Spirit. The second is this, in verse 14. The heart of the one who believes is open by the Holy Spirit to the word of God. That is, a sincere and pure belief and attraction to the truth of the gospel. That is in verse 14. Here, look. And a certain woman named Lydia, a seller of purple of the city of Thyatira, which worshipped God, heard us, whose heart the Lord had opened, and that she attended unto the things which were spoken of Paul. Now, when the scripture says she attended unto the things, what she means, that is another way of saying, she wholly gave herself over to them. She uh, actually believed upon those things. It is what the, um, the catechism question continues with, is uh, savingly enlightening their minds, renewing and powerfully determining their wills, so as they, although themselves dead in sin, are hereby made willing and able freely to answer his call and to accept and embrace the grace offered and conveyed therein. This Holy Spirit anointed preaching that Paul was giving these women there at the riverside was reaching hearts that the Holy Spirit had already begun to work in and they received that which was preached. Romans 8.30 Those whom he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. She was unable to receive what was said until God made her alive to the truth. Um, we prayed for our, our friends in Africa recently. And we prayed for uh, some of those men that we teach at Heidelberg Seminary uh, and the, in the Reformed uh, Fellowship Church of Kenya. Uh, remember one of them uh, having a confusion about something of, of what is, does regeneration come after faith and repentance or before it? And he, he was very careful to, to uh, he's very uh, articulate, but he was very convinced that uh, first faith and repentance, then regeneration. And I had to take him aside and I had to say, um, well, let's be clear about this. Regeneration is a making alive a dead thing. And if a soul is dead, if a, if a soul is dead in its trespasses and sins, it cannot hear anything. It must be made alive by the Spirit so that it can hear something. That we, likewise, we cannot simply of our own sinful nature still uh, gin, up the, gin up the ability to believe the gospel's truth. We have to be made alive to do so. Why does one believe and the other not? God says, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. It does not say that it is anything in them 
In fact, before anything was in them, God chose one over the other. No reason why each one. From nothing in them does God give any credit. He chooses who He chooses. I do what I do. I do right among the affairs of men and in the host of heaven. No one can ward off my hand or say to me, What hast thou done? So, when one comes and another doesn't, um, we are reminded that it is God who sovereignly opens the hearts of those who would believe. The heart of the one who believes is opened by the Holy Spirit to the Word of God first, and then, be having been made alive to the reality of that truth, that day, the work of calling was going on for some time. On Pentecost, Peter is very careful to say that this promise is to you and your children. But some, some faithful servant had to tell Lydia, some faithful servant had to tell the people in Jerusalem on Pentecost to pay attention to the truth of what the Gospel said. Uh, Romans 10, 13-17 kind of outlines what this really means. For whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then shall they call upon him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. But they have all not obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So then faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. So it is the word of God going forth, which enlivens those to believe what it says. And what Paul and his companions do with these women at the, at the, at the side is to do exactly what the, the man in Macedonia said. He helps them. And the idea of the man from Macedonia there is kind of uh, the idea, the word help there is really akin to something nautical. Uh, throw us some rope. We need help here. That's what he's saying. And uh, it is just, it, it, as if they are in a life and death situation. And the man from Macedonia comes and says, throw us some rope. We are sinking. Sinking in our sins, sinking in death. And this is exactly what Paul does in coming over and his companions do in coming over to Macedonia. It is what you can do as well. If you witness of the Lord Jesus Christ, if you witness of your own faith and your own belief in Him to others, what is it that gives you joy in this? What is it your greatest comfort? Well, you, you can witness in any way to that. You can witness to anyone in that. That is actually helping someone. That's throwing them rope. That is saying to them, here is true help. Here is true value. Here is true salvation. Here is what you truly need. You need the comfort that comes from being a child of God through Christ, who is, by the Holy Spirit, made ever more willing each day to believe and to serve Him. So how can you help? Well, you can act in a way this week, today, uh, in the near future, for the cause of the gospel to pray and share, believe and serve in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. You can throw a rope to those who are in trouble by sharing with them the gospel's truth.
So we see, first of all, that the prayers of the Holy Spirit's act is, the prayers of both the hearts of the messenger and receiver are prepared by the Holy Spirit to hear and believe the gospel. Secondly, that the heart of one who does believe is opened by the Holy Spirit and brought to a sincere and pure belief in the truth of the gospel. And thirdly, that the heart of the converted publicly profess Christ and have enthusiasm for his cause. Uh, this is a, an obvious and noticeable change in life which occurs in all who become Christ's people, or ought to. In, in verse 15 we find this uh, testified to, here in Acts 16. And when she was baptized, that is Lydia, and her household, let me stop for a second, I should have, uh, uh, we had a, uh, I, I, I was speaking last week and um, uh, well, okay, I was just a panel member at a, uh, a seminar at the church at which I am called associate pastor in Wisconsin. Um, and uh, we had a, 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 a pretty nice uh, um, conference um, where there were several speakers, and then we'd have questions and answers about what was said. And uh, what was fun is, is the topic of the, uh, topic of the, the, topic of the, of the conference was all about... Um, the, the, the uh, fidelity and, uh, and the reliability of God's Word. And uh, it, it attracts uh, more than just your typical Reformed people. Um, in fact, uh, it was probably only about two-thirds of us were Reformed in some way. There was about one-third of them which were Baptists. Um, and we love our Baptist friends. I went to a Baptist seminary, and it's always a great opportunity to hear from a different point of view on things sometimes. But we had the opportunity, because a young man in the church had enlisted in the Marines. I don't know why he would enlist in the Marines when the Army is a perfectly good thing to enlist in. But, but, he, no, but he, he, was, uh, he had enlisted, but he wasn't sure uh, when he was actually going to enter. And so every Sunday he has to go to the entry point. And um, he had not been yet baptized. Well, he had a wife and a son, and the son had not been baptized either. And so we had the opportunity to, in front of all of these um, Baptist fellows, um, to, uh, to baptize both the man and his little boy at the same time. And um, only one, only one of that uh, one-third contingent of Baptists uh, actually had uh, a question of me later, uh, as my, uh, my pastor asked me, the, the senior pastor, he says, I want you to give the meditation about this household baptism we're doing. And I, I, I did out of this passage, and uh, only one of them uh, said one of them one of them said anything negative, but one one did say, you know, I, I haven't heard that presented quite that way before. And and he says, I, I know that you guys are brothers who believe the word of God, and it is good uh, that you are able to tell that. I believe you believe this to be scriptural. I said, that's a sly answer, I said, because you don't, you don't agree, do you? He says, oh, no, I don't agree, but I believe you think it is. And I can respect that. I said, okay, well, I can respect your wrongness, too. And, and um, we, we kind of had a little fun with that. I, you know, I said, you know, I went to a Baptist seminary. He said, oh, yeah, I heard that. He says, so I understand. He says, good, we can understand that, and we can still sit here and still be brothers, because that's the point. Our salvation is not in the time or mode of our baptism. Our salvation lay in Christ himself. And, and the Holy Spirit leads us not to have a certain view of a baptism or a certain view of any other particular doctrine, but to love him and be obviously his, 
no matter what. To be Christ in everything that we are. This is what, this is what happens to Lydia. Because she says, and when she and her household were baptized, she begged us, saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. So she persuaded us. Um, in fact, uh, I think it is uh, the, the King James who, uh, version that I think is a better um, and more colorful way of describing Lydia's attitude. And she constrained us. That's kind of good. I like that. Preacher, you're coming to my house for dinner. You're coming. Got it? Okay. And then, of course, Paul said, yes, ma'am, and came. Um, There was a public way in which she and her family brought it out there and said, we belong to Jesus, everyone in this house. She was baptized as a mother. Probably, she loved the members of her household. She was baptized. The water was administered by Paul as a sign and seal of a greater thing, which was unchangeable. She was baptized, the Holy Spirit working the inward change in her heart of the reality of salvation. And then afterwards, she's a humble woman with a humble thirst for more about Jesus. Come to my house and tell me more about this. And she wanted more. And not pridefully, but humbly. If you judge me, to be faithful, she says. And there was in this a participation in the kingdom work itself. Lydia, as a result of what had happened, acted and prevailed upon them, constrained them to come and tell her more. Come to my house and stay. She makes an offer they can't refuse. One of the benefits of the life lived in worship and service to Christ is that it shows the rule of Christ to the world and to each other. I don't know if you ever consider that as a fruit of your own salvation. Is it something you consider? The very reason you're here this morning, the reason you do what you do from day to day, the reason you serve Christ, do you see it as a witness itself? To the rule of Christ, the gathered saints on the Lord's Day, every Lord's Day, is a public testimony to the ongoing rule of Christ in this world. Now that, that, that sounds very lofty, I hope it does, but it is one of those great marks of the church that it is, it is a great thing that, that Christ's rule is not shown in having the right people in the government. Uh, Christ's rule is not shown in having the right people and the right uh, events happening in the world. Christ's rule is shown by the uncompromising obedience of his saints to him in their service to him in a world which makes no sense to serve him. That, that is a wonderful and marvelous thing that we have at our disposal. So, here we find through recognizable works of the Holy Spirit in the salvation of every heart converted to the gospel and to the Lord Jesus Christ. A preparation of the heart of the messenger and the receiver, a sincere and pure belief and attraction to the truth of Christ and to Christ, and thirdly, an obvious and noticeable change of life and affections. I said at the beginning that one of the true miracles of God we see every day 
is seeing the work of God in the heart of a sinner who before was an enemy of God. The conversion of a heart from hatred to love of God is perhaps no greater miracle than any we can see in the whole of history. There's no possibility of human credit for what occurs. Paul surely knew that. What an unlikely servant Paul was for him to choose. But think about this. Apart from Christ, we're not sick or ignorant or in danger or, or uh, unfulfilled. No. We are, each and every one of us, dead apart from Christ. How can a dead person do anything? Well, they can't. They must be made alive. And that is God's work. The great miracle is, is that he makes something dead alive. But God doesn't act without his people in mind. And we are created to glorify God, obviously. And so when he acts to make someone alive, the words of life are the means, but it is he, the life-giving Holy Spirit, that actually makes people alive. And he asks people, as he makes them alive, to join with them in being alive and acting out those things. And in him, therefore, salvation is really the grand act of resurrection. That is truly what salvation is. And it causes us to be able to say, for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. At one point in this message, I asked you uh, what you were doing to show the rule of Christ in your life to others. Are you able today to send someone some rope to help them? Some testimony of the gospel's grace. Some demonstration of your love for them because of the love that you have received from Christ. It is time to act, therefore. Time to throw that rope. Time to step out in faith and be a helper of others. To be a herald of the truth. To be a servant of God showing forth Christ's rule in your life. So that more may come and rule with uh, that Christ may also rule in others and more may come and serve him by, well, worshiping him as he deserves to be worshipped. It is time to act, isn't it? Will you? Let's pray. Lord our God, we give you thanks and praise for all that you have given us. Everything pertaining to life and godliness is ours as we are partakers of divine nature in Christ. Holy Spirit, you have given us life, brought us from death unto life, and united us to Christ in his death and resurrection. That what he is and has and done, we have also. That what we are, he took upon him and yet conquered it. So that we no longer are in our trespasses and sins, no longer dead but alive unto you. We praise you, O Lord, uh, for all that you give us. We praise you for who you are the sovereign miracle worker, the turner of hearts, the life giver, the Father who loves us, the Son who saves us, the Holy Spirit who upholds us and guides us. In these things, O oh Lord, we pray with thanksgiving for the many mercies you give us. Amen.